0: We continue with our teaching series, Foundations in a World That Is Constantly Changing. What are the foundations that are solid and firm, trustworthy and true, unchanging, that we can build and orient our lives around? To guide us on our journey, we are following the words of the Apostles' Creed, the oldest of our creeds and confessions in our Book of Confessions. Today we arrive to the statement in the Apostles' Creed that says, I believe in the communion of saints. Friends, let's first gather around a a definition for the word saint. A saint, according to Scripture, is a child of God redeemed by grace in living by faith. Here's how theologian Frederick Buechner defines and explains saint. It's a helpful definition. Many people think of saints as plaster saints or moral exemplars, men and women of such paralyzing virtue that they never thought a nasty thought or did an evil deed their whole lives long. As far as I know, real saints never even come close to characterizing themselves that way. In other words, the feet of saints are as much of clay as everybody else's. And their sainthood consists less of what they have done than that what God has for some reason chosen to do through them. The Holy Spirit has been called the Lord, the giver of life. And drawing their power from that source, saints are essentially life givers. To be with them is to become more alive. The words of scripture that are going to guide us this morning come from the book of Daniel. Now a word about the context of Daniel in case it's been some time since you have been spending time in the book of Daniel. The setting of Daniel is one of exile. In exile the ancient Israelites are prisoners in a foreign land. They are removed from people and places that they love. They will be in exile for about 70 years. They were not where they wanted to be. Life in exile brings a potential threat to the distinctiveness of Jews, to their very life and also to their fundamental faithfulness to God. It's against this Backdrop that we are introduced to Daniel and his companions who are among the prisoners who are taken from Jerusalem into Babylon. Early in the story we learn of how Daniel rises through the ranks and becomes a top advisor to the king. He takes a leap of faith and steps forward, trusting in the faithfulness of God when no one else can interpret the king's dreams. Daniel and his friends are promoted time and again in the administration. Chapter 3 begins abruptly with the construction of an enormous gold statue. It's dedicated in the presence of an impressive gathering of state dignitaries. The order is that everyone is to fall down and to worship this gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Most people would have had little difficulty with that command because most people in the ancient Near East had a worldview that was polytheistic, the worship and the belief in many gods. However, the command to worship the statue creates a problem for the Hebrews, who cannot obey without breaking an essential tenet. Word gets back to King Nebuchadnezzar that there are three who will not obey, all friends of Daniel. Which brings us to King Nebuchadnezzar's reaction. I invite us now to listen to God's word to us today from Daniel chapter 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. So they brought those men before the king... Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and you do not worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble to fall down and worship the statue that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not... Be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. O God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, may it all be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Speak, Lord. For we are listening, continue to conform us into the people that you long for us to be. Through Christ our Lord we pray together. Amen. Elizabeth Elliot was twice widowed. First by the martyr death of missionary Jim Elliot and then by the death of her second husband Addison Leach. As she was mourning the death of her second husband, Elliot talks about how helpful the Apostles' Creed was for her during this time of mourning. She used it to answer the question, what things have not changed even though my husband has died? One might imagine Daniel and his friends asking a similar question now in exile. Hauled off to Babylon... Far from home, everything turned upside down. What has not changed, even though now we are exiles in a foreign land? We see in the text that their answer is God. God has not changed. God is still there wherever there is. The big story is that in spite of all the hardships, they still hold on to their faith. They stand firm because they trust in God no matter what, and no matter what includes death. What can we learn from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that can help us on our journey today? We see how they believe that God is able to deliver them. They know the rescue stories of the past, of how God saved Noah from the flood, Israel from captivity, David from Goliath, Gideon from the Midianites, and so many other stories. But they don't have to just go back to old stories in history. They also can look to their own lives and how God has rescued them during their time of exile. For example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been saved with Daniel as they ate vegetables instead of the king's fair in chapter 1. We see in chapter 2 that they prayed with Daniel for revelation and interpretation to be able to understand the king's dreams. However, even though they affirm that God is able to deliver them, they add, but if not. But if not. Verse 18, it's a powerful statement of faith. The men profess that God is able to deliver them, but even if not, they will trust in God and they will not obey the king's commands. Friends, they show us biblical faith. For biblical faith is not confidence in particular outcomes. It is confidence in a sovereign God. And the ability to hold on to faith when faced with overwhelming odds is always strengthened by the presence of community, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego together. One of my favorite summer reads a few years back was Daniel James Brown's bestseller, The Boys in the Boat. The author chronicles the unlikely eight-man rowing team from the University of Washington, who won the gold medal in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. It was the fourth year of the Great Depression. Listen to what Brown says. One in four working Americans, 10 million people, had no job and no prospects of finding one. And only a quarter of them were receiving any kind of relief. Industrial production had fallen by half in those four years. At least one million people, and perhaps as many as two million, were homeless, living on the streets or in shanty towns like Seattle's Hooverville. In many American towns, it was impossible to find a bank whose doors weren't permanently shuttered. Behind those doors, the savings of countless American families had disappeared forever nobody could say when or if the hard times would ever end and perhaps that was the worst of it whether you were a banker or a baker a homemaker or homeless it was with you day and night a terrible unrelenting uncertainty about the future a feeling that the ground could drop out from under you for good at any moment This was the bleak setting in American history that was the backdrop for the boys in the boat. People lived with persistent uncertainty about the future. This was especially true for a person named Joe Rance. Joe came from a particularly poor family that was hit hard by the Depression. Lost his mom when he was just six. His dad struggled to find work. He's shuttled back and forth, back and forth between family members and his father. One afternoon when he was 15 years old, he comes home to find the family car packed. His stepmother's in the front seat, his younger brothers are in the back seat. He goes up to his dad, And his dad explains that we can't make it here. So his wife, Joe's stepmom, she is insisting now that they leave. When Joe asks, where are we going to go? His dad looks him in the eyes, into the eyes of his eldest son, who's 15 years old, and says, I'm not sure. But then he goes on to explain to Joe that you are not going with us. His dad says that the little kids need a father more than Joe does. For Joe is now pretty much grown up. Joe pleads to come along. His dad says that's not going to be possible. He then goes on to tell his son that if there is one thing that he has figured out in life, it's that if you want to be happy, you have to learn how to be happy on your own. So when Joe wakes up, 15 year old Joe, alone the next morning, he resolves that he will never ever again depend on people, not on his family nor anyone else for the sense of who he was. He would survive and he would do it on his own. He learns to fend for himself. He stays in school, gets accepted to the University of Washington and ultimately makes the rowing team. But the problem becomes that eight-man rowing is the ultimate team sport, which ultimately rescues Joe from a lonely life plagued with personal insecurities to participate in something so much bigger than himself in mission with others. Rowing teams that win, they learn the secret of pulling their oars through the water at the same time, in the same rhythm, at the same speed, row all their uh, oars in the water, pulling together, even though they cannot see the destination that they are headed toward. You learn how each member plays a particular role with a particular responsibility. The middle four rowers tend to be your, your strongest and your most powerful. The person sitting in the stern has a very different responsibility than the one sitting furthest from the coxswain. Brown paints a portrait of exceptional unity. He writes about the trust that was developed and forged both on and off the water. He talks about 60 years later when the surviving members of the team gathered together that they were so emotionally connected that tears would brim so easily in their eyes as they recounted the victory that they achieved because of their friendship and their commitment together, the boys in the boat were family. Back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The story continues with the three men bound and thrown into the fire. But the king sees four men unbound, walking around in the fire, unhurt, And one of them seems to have the appearance of a God. They were cast into the fire, but another appeared with them in the midst of the furnaces, the presence of God. The three were not delivered from the fire. They were delivered in the fire. God did not keep them from the furnace, but instead found them in it. Friends, the living God will not shield you from all disappointments and trials. But in the loneliness, the betrayal, the suffering, the hardship, and the loss that you experience in life, God comes and walks with you. The very presence of God with us in difficult circumstances, in an ongoing way that God continues to be present with us, present to us, is through the presence. Of community the Protestant theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that Christ is always stronger in your brother's heart than in your own which means that we depend on others for our faith and it also means that the love of Christ is never something that we can hoard Or as poet Christian Wyman notes, Christ comes alive in the communion between people. Friends, it has been such a difficult year. We have been through something together. And one of the lessons that we have learned during the harshness of the past 13 months, a time of... ...increased isolation where we have had to work hard and be creative... ...to stay connected via social media, video conferencing, notes of encouragement, phone calls. One of the things that we have learned is that community is absolutely essential. It is an essential thing that we are to form our lives around. If we are to be a people who live with hope and faith... Maybe your practice of community has eroded during COVID. Now is a time for rebuilding, to build our lives around community. I depend on others for my faith. I depend on you for my faith. I absolutely cannot imagine the last 13 months or other times of suffering in my life without the saints' communion. Community is absolutely essential. God does not desire that we go it alone or fend for ourselves. We are created for one another. We need each other. You are a sign to me of God's persevering love and faithfulness. No matter how lonely or frightened or discouraged we come, we get to help each other find our way back to the one who loves us more than we can possibly imagine. Who will be faithful? It's what we get to do as the church. This includes the bond that we have with those who have gone before, with that great cloud of witnesses that precede us in faith, as well as those who will come after. Our story gets swept into the grand story of Jesus and his friends. As we participate in something so much bigger than ourselves and grand mission to others. Friends, I'd like to invite you to reflect on a few questions with me. The first being Who has helped you have faith in the furnace this past year? Who has helped you have faith in the furnace this past year? Is it a family member? a friend that you walked with in the mornings in your neighborhood is it a neighbor a, a coworker your Sunday school class or a small group that you stayed connected with via Zoom throughout this past year what a good time to say thank you and second with an awareness that you are created for genuine vulnerable community with others how might you attend to your need for the communion of saints in the months ahead. Many of the Communion of Saints are unknown to us, but some are known. Who is in the boat with you? Who knows how to pray for you? Who knows your hopes and your fears and the longings of your heart? If you do not have a pocket of community, reach out to us we would be privileged to engage this conversation with you. Saints are essentially life givers. To be with them is to become more alive. How might you be experiencing this to be true? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.